We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome in to the Redwire NFL Podcast. It is Thursday, March 18th. We are deep into the free agency now. We just recorded uh, part one of our free agent frenzy on Wednesday, but... At that time, we didn't really have a ton of, of movement on the wide receiver market, so we're going to dive into that. We're going to get into all the movement from across the league, obviously. Uh, we started things off with part one, talking Patriots, all that good stuff, and a, and a couple other big signings, the quarterbacks. And now we, we are starting to see, Mario, the, this, um, this wide receiver market start to thaw a little bit. Uh, we saw a couple signings yesterday among the receivers. I want to get things started with Curtis Samuel landing in Washington. So obviously reuniting with, with his former college teammate, Terry McLaurin. We got some serious Ohio State flavor, uh, to the Washington football team. Now, of course, Chase Young on the, on the other side of the ball. Um, but you know, with the movements that, that Washington has made, well, we'll get there in a second, but how do you think that, that Curtis Samuel to, to Washington, how does that sit with you as far as like where his potential la- r- rumored landing spots were? And, uh, you know, what does this mean for, for Washington? Well, it's a good signing for Washington's interest. I think Curtis Samuel is a pretty convincing talent and one whose price tag would have been a lot higher if he didn't have to play with Kyle Allen a couple of years ago. So it's, it's good to see, uh, Washington for their 
you know, interest to get him. I was hoping he would maybe go a couple other places. I thought Jacksonville would have a lot of good reason to pay up for him. Apparently not. Apparently them in Miami, despite having a lot of money available, don't want to pay, uh, what it was like 11 million a year over three years. Like that's, that's wild to me. I know that the, the, the salary cap crunched and in the, as a result, some, some teams probably had, you know, pro, uh, cap consultants coming in and saying like, this is the optimal contract offer to offer for these guys and you shouldn't go above market. It's like, if there's not a plague in the next two years, like there was this year, the cap's going to go back up. So just, I don't understand why these teams who could have really used guys like him and guys like Will Fuller weren't just willing to pay what they would have been in a normal off season. And I, at least in the case where it's like Washington's clearly making a long-term investment here. Like if you, if you're looking for one-term deals, yeah, go ahead and pinch them on that one year cap. But, uh, this guy's Curtis Samuel's going to be drawing less money than he's worth. Uh, not just, you know, not just next year when it's objectively true, but I think even this year he'll prove to be worth the money, at least as long as Fitzpatrick's out there. And maybe if Heineke stays healthy, he can be good enough for Samuel. But I thought that in, Scott Turner's offense in Carolina, Curtis Samuel's talent went to waste basically because of Kyle Allen. Like Kyle Allen just couldn't throw more than, well, he couldn't throw anywhere, but he couldn't, he especially was bad at anything that wasn't a check down. And so he's had all these plays where Curtis Samuel's getting open. The ball is just somewhere else on the field. And I think Fitzpatrick is a good fit for Samuel in that sense that he can go downfield, even though Carolina did not use Curtis Samuel downfield last year. They used Robbie Anderson is kind of like their wide receiver one at all levels. They made DJ Moore the downfield specialist, and they made Curtis Samuel the underneath specialist in the slot. And I think as much as I hate Scott Turner's offense, and as much as I think people like him shouldn't really have jobs in the NFL just because their dads did, he does have a better fit. Like His offense fits better with Curtis Samuel in the slot than it does someone like Steven Sims or whatever they had last year. Because last year, part of what I hated about the Scott Turner offense with Washington was that they subtracted Steven Sims' 2019 role and replaced it with what was basically a decoy slot receiver, because which is to say the slot receiver was running further downfield than it did in 2019 when Steven Sims did so well. And I still think Steven Sims is pretty clearly a good player. But I wouldn't have recommended that they use him the way that Scott Turner was using the slot receiver last year. Like, at best, that was going to make a decoy function, clearing out the safety, tying up the, the linebackers in their outside zone coverages, and freeing up space in the process for running back checkdowns and Logan Thomas checkdowns. And that's exactly what happened. You had Logan Thomas just catching a bunch of checkdowns that weren't competitively meaningful. J.D. McKissick catching checkdowns that were cleared out with this slot decoy for no reasons. Like, it's all crap. I think clearly they would have been better off giving Steven Sims those targets. But Scott Turner's big thing is, like, he he got to where he is thinking that he made Christian McCaffrey, you know? And so they're, they're committed to this thing where they clear out space and try to make Christian McCaffrey happen over and over because in the past, Christian McCaffrey catching passes just meant more treats for Scott Turner. So he was just like, why not? Why wouldn't he keep doing what got him treats in the past? But with Curtis Samuel instead of Steven Sims and Ryan Fat, uh, Fitzpatrick, especially instead of Kyle Allen and Alex Smith, that's that changes that slot receiver role from one that is necessarily limited to a decoy function and giving it an actual chance to draw targets, both because Curtis Samuel can run f- downfield from the slot thanks to his speed and because Ryan Fitzpatrick will at the very least try to throw it there. I still don't think he's some kind of good deep ball passer like the legend that comes with him at this point, but 
he's definitely more willing to do it than Alex Smith and Kyle Allen, who are just trash quarterbacks. You can't make a good offense with quarterbacks like that. Uh, with Fitzpatrick, at least he'll throw it that far, and he like even though I don't think and I'm not convinced he's good at it like he definitely is better at it than Alex Smith and Kyle Allen too so there's a chance for Curtis Samuel's usage in the slot to be something that the offense did not have at all in 2020 and it will still clear out space underneath for McKissick and Thomas of course but I think that uh or Antonio Gibson god willing they should they should really stop the JD McKissick offense it's a bad idea uh, but if they clear, if they're clearing out all that space and if Curtis is actually getting these real targets and Terry McLaurin, of course, getting hopefully a little bit of relief from the coverage rolled his way, that definitely opens up everything. And, and I think that it should, it should be not the best case scenario for Curtis Samuel, but definitely better than some other ones. And I think it's an upgrade over Carolina. I even, I, I, I say that as someone who hates a lot of things about the Washington offense and the Washington coaches, but in in Carolina, he was just getting these these short catches, these carries, which he did very well with. But it's it's a waste to have Curtis Samuel not running routes. He's a great route runner. His his main strength is creating separation as a route runner, and to use that as only a like a flats and curl and drag route guy underneath is pretty much a sin in my opinion. So I, I hate the Scott Turner offense, especially as it was last year. But I would have to admit that having Fitzpatrick and Samuel there will make it a, a much more coherent theory. Yeah, I think that, you know, that again, I, I'm not trying to, to, um, give too much of a defense to, to Scott Turner necessarily, but I also feel like, you know, Washington was going out there with, you know, with, you know, like a water pistol to a gunfight almost as far as like the, the arm strength of their quarterbacks that they were rolling out there, whether it was, um, Alex Smith or Kyle Allen. I mean, Alex Smith just at that stage of his career, uh, you know, so, uh, ad- adverse to averse uh, to, to pushing anything downfield. So I mean, it, I think the McKissick stuff was, was more a function of Alex Smith. Maybe I'm wrong. On well, they that did one. it from week one. You know, it's like Stephen Sims's depth of target was way higher than it was last year because they were having him run like post routes and fly routes from the slot, whereas in 2019 he was running like quick slants and stuff. So like. I, I, I am I am biased because I think Steven Sims is a good player and guys like especially McKissick it, it, like the way that I view the game he's just categorically useless I I don't want him on my roster no matter how cheap he is no matter how little he plays I can't see a productive use for him um, so I thought that yeah you're right Alex Smith and Kyle Allen can't throw downfield of course but that's a lot of times and in most offenses I would even say like that's where the slot receiver comes to benefit and instead of just giving it to Sims or some other slot receiver they were like we got to make that guy run so we can create checkdowns for our running back and right. checkdowns for Logan Thomas and it's it's brutal numbers you know it's like they were they were they, they were doing a bourbon bowl strategy whether they meant to or not and uh we'll see I guess I guess you know maybe Steven Sims can get another look at another team and maybe he'll be bad there and maybe in hindsight I'll be like I guess Scott Turner was right but uh, in the meantime, I'm, I don't know. I just, I hate, I hate the idea of like, we got to scheme open JD McKissick. Like you right. really, I don't. mean, it's, it's <laughs> you could have done anything else from, from the bye week forward, which I think is, is around the time that Alex Smith took over and obviously he missed, or maybe, maybe the Detroit game. So week 10, but McKissick had 80 targets in, in those 10 games the rest of the way with, let's see, five of those games having double digit targets. So, I mean, that, that was just absurd. And I, Again, I, I do kind of align some of that with Smith, but, but you're, I mean, you're still right in the sense that they, uh, just 
being so check down heavy, even pre Alex Smith, it was obviously not the, the right way to, to get things rolling. Um, when you look at the, at the rest of this receiving core, obviously we're, we're got to get into Terry McLaurin, but you have two guys now in McLaurin and uh, Samuel who either run a mid four, three or a low four, three, you know, it, is this something where Washington can really leverage that? Do you see them leveraging the speed advantage that they could potentially have? Because there, there aren't really a ton of NFL receiving cores with, with multiple sub four, four guys. Yeah. And I still am pretty high relatively anyway on Antonio Gandy golden and Calvin Harmon, who's coming back from the ACL tear. So I actually think Washington's receiver group is pretty talented. It's just last year they were at a, inconvenient point in development and, and obviously the offensive line and quarterbacks made it that much more difficult to develop and, and keep a, like a coherent usage pattern for any of these guys. But you're right. Having Samuel speed on the field, having McLaurin speed on the field, that's something that makes a bad offensive line better right off the bat. And ideally, in my opinion, you would have a quarterback more like Heineke playing than Fitzpatrick because another way you can make an offensive line better is having a quarterback who can run. And not just because they, not just because they mitigate the, the damage of, of a pass rush, they discourage a defense from pass rushing in the first place. Like one thing that's been amazing to me to watch the past couple of years is when Josh Allen throws the ball, defenses oftentimes don't even try to pass rush him because it's so hard to deal with all of the speed of, of, you know, John Brown, uh, Stefan Diggs is, not necessarily a burner, but he's, he's such a good route runner that he creates separation and, and causes like the same sort of stress to a defense downfield. But there's like a certain threshold I think you can reach as an offense in terms of speed threat on the field and quarterback ability to strike on the field pass wise, plus the ability of that quarterback to run. And all of a sudden it's like the defense doesn't even have enough guys on the field to set aside a robber. Or if they want to set aside a robber, they have to tell their three or four down linemen to make containment a priority rather than rushing the passer. Because if they don't contain, then Allen can run for like eight or nine yards. And all this stuff causes the defense's bandwidth to sap and, and they get, they just start to make new errors that they didn't used to because they're forced to play in new stressful conditions that they haven't practiced for. And, you can you can make it you can make that pass rush slow down a little bit just with that wide receiver speed like they're less likely to call aggressive blitzes if you have speed like that on the field and if you have a guy who can run and break containment that that makes the defense put more containment on the field too so it's like all these things can help cover up a bad offensive line and adding Curtis is a good first step to that so hopefully Fitzpatrick can you know just kind of be good as a passer but if that offensive line is still problematically bad it's not it's not so much the running away factor that makes Heineke interesting to me. It's it's the fact that once he does run one time, the defensive coordinator is going to say like, oh well, I'd rather not look stupid on any further third and longs. Let's just not try to rush him as much and see how that goes. And and if the quarterback can throw well enough, and if there's enough speed and talent at receiver, you can still keep moving the ball. And I don't know what. Antonio Gibson factors into this like like he, to, to me there's there's a, there's a lot of upside with him obviously when, when you're talking about just size and speed and the rookie season that he had and his pass catching background we still don't know exactly what Turner has in mind for McKissick again this year and for Antonio Gibson this year I'm a little worried that Turner really thinks that McKissick is like his muse or something like his his crowning artistic achievement and 
if so, he needs to let that go and just give all those reps to Gibson or as many of those get, uh, as many of those reps to Gibson as Gibson can handle. Because if you do get Antonio Gibson going as a pass catcher in this broader equation, you might not need a good offensive line. It might not be easy to run the ball. If you have a bad enough offensive line, like maybe his, his efficiency as a runner regresses a little, but there's so much room on the field that could be there this year that wasn't there last year. And if you can get Antonio Gibson, Pushing 230 pounds, running a high 4-3 himself in all this space where the, where the defense is chasing Curtis Samuel and Terry McLaurin. There is a lot of explosiveness there. I guess it's just kind of, we don't know for sure how the quarterbacks are going to go hold up. We don't know what's going on with the offensive line. We don't know if Turner is going to make it all happen. Uh, he never really did in the past. Like you could see that Carolina, the second, and, and Teddy Bridgewater sucks. I'm sorry. Like it, yeah. maybe it's just his leg injury, but it's not like the quarterback play is what explains the difference between the health of like the 2019 Carolina offense and the 2021 and the health specifically of those receivers because Curtis Samuel was not efficiently producing under Kyle Allen. And last year he was very efficient. Robbie Anderson was very efficient. DJ Moore, uh, even though miscast outside was very efficient. And that's just going from Scott Turner to Joe Brady. Nothing else happened, you know? So I think that Turner is is not someone we should just give the benefit of the doubt, but there is a lot of potential there if he doesn't screw it up. Okay. Yeah. No, we, we like the we like this signing a lot. I think you went into some some pretty great detail there as to how things could could work in Washington and that how they can start to leverage those things and start to, you know, maybe mitigate some of the weaknesses that they have in other spots uh, because they have such, you know, speed advantages um, at some of those skill positions. Um, so that, that Washington suddenly becoming pretty interesting. If they, if they have, if, you know, Fitzpatrick continues to have the horseshoe stuck, you know, where for another season, then, you know, that this could be a really, really fun team to watch. Plus the defense that they have. Yes. Um, yes. Also defense. having, adding William Jackson. Yeah. I mean, I, it wouldn't completely shock me if the football team goes back to back on the division crown. I think um, they will. And, like it's, and, I and, and not in like a funny meme way, but like no. in a legitimate 10 and 6 way. Yeah, because if Fitzpatrick and Samuel do improve the offense, and if by some uh, miracle the offensive line is something other than one of the worst five offensive lines in the league, that makes the defense so much more dangerous in Washington. And it could have been a de- dangerous defense last year if they ever had a lead. But because they usually are in a tie game or because they, they're usually losing a lot, teams ran on them instead of uh, instead of putting themselves at risk of the pass rush. It's like it's an easy choice if you have it. You'd rather run the ball because that keeps Chase Young and Montez Sweat out of the game, basically. And if this offense improves, you're going to have to let Chase Young and Montez Sweat into the game calculus more, and you're going to have to let them into the game calculus more just as William Jackson shows up instead of Ronald Darby. And Darby had a productive year last year, but that's all or mostly, I would say, due to the, the circumstances of like the pass rush. And having William Jackson there with with a really good pass rush and and Kendall Fuller on the other side who's legitimately good, there's quite a bit that that defense could do damage wise that it didn't have the chance to in 2020. Absolutely. So uh, you know, little personal uh, anecdote in a recent best ball, or you know, this might be helpful for for strategy figuring out your your defense in, in the end game. I didn't go after any of the top flight defenses necessarily or at least the ones that are getting drafted as they are but i yeah, it's a fade like, at the top. Like, 
Yes, definitely. So like in rounds like 16 and 17 or 16 and 18, I double tapped the Bucks and the football team. And I feel great about, about that as, as my defense duo. And, and I barely had to spend any like real capital on it. Yeah. People are taking the Rams specifically way too high. Oh, Stanley's and, gone. Like it, you can't expect the same stuff. And, uh, John Johnson just left. I mean, it's, it's not going to be the same defense. Right, and I think, it, like, there's a gap, too. There's, like, a gap between the Rams and the second defense, which is so weird when, by all conventional metrics, Tampa was right there with them last year. So I don't know why Tampa isn't getting that kind of hype. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, th- I I don't even go after Tampa as much so far as I've been going after, like, the Cardinals and the Chargers. But if, if I could get one of those higher-priced defenses right now, it would definitely be Washington for the price, for the, for the current price anyway. If they, if they go way up by the Rams, I guess maybe not. Uh, but, yeah, there's, there's no reason to be taking the Rams. Maybe the Steelers you could justify, but I, I don't even want to – I don't want to pay that price. The Ravens are too high. Uh, definitely got to go after pass rush on teams where you can imagine them having enough leads for other teams to actually throw the ball against them so that the pass rush can materialize in practice. And yeah, Washington, Arizona, Chargers even, I think all project as about as well as with what we can possibly know now as those top teams. And there's like two or three rounds between them sometimes. Yeah. So the, yeah, the way, the way that the uh, defense market shaping up, I think you identified some good ones to target. And speaking of Arizona, AJ Green to the Cardinals uh, was announced shortly after our pod yesterday. What are your thoughts there? Because my, my initial impression is that you know AJ's at a part of his career where, of course, he's not as good as he used to be. Um, but I think uh, being on some of those Cincinnati teams probably pretty soul cleaving, probably pretty yeah. hard to get yourself that you know excited to to drag your yourself out there and you know have have your quarterback have zero time to throw to you in the, in the first place this and that so he was overused early in the season that that usage obviously shifted uh, later on as T Higgins started to break out but i could see not necessarily a renaissance here but I think this isn't a bad pickup for the Cardinals, and I still think at the very least, you know, you get him opposite DeAndre Hopkins on the outside. You've got two awesome red zone like weapons that that defenses are going to be very uncomfortable with guarding both of them. I still think that AJ Green can get it done uh, in the red zone in, in that short area. He can still go up and get it, in my opinion. So having those guys. Maybe Green's not the guy that's moving the chain so much. You're still obviously going to be peppering DeAndre Hopkins with targets, but I like I like that as getting a second uh, true outside receiver uh, for Kyler Murray. I like the theory of adding AJ Green, and as far as what the Cardinals think he is, I'm I'm sure the logic as presented checks out. I just kind of worry that he doesn't have anything left, and I really think it's stupid that. Arizona didn't just pay more for somebody else. It's like eight and a half million for one year is only. I know you. I know you probably are getting you know three or four year contract demands from the Galladay's, whoever else. But eight and a half million is not actually cheap for this cap crunched off season for a player of of AJ Green's age and what he how he produced last year. So it strikes me as like a fake bargain. Like it's just it's just like dumb guy bargain hunting kind of thing. And I really don't understand why they wouldn't just pay a little bit more for somebody else. And probably the, I would have preferred other guys at the same or even less of an expense on, on the basis of like how good they are. But if AJ, if AJ Green does have something left, then it should be 
at least a harmless signing and, and maybe one with some upside, but he's going to be 33 in July. It's not like he's, you know, pushing 30 right at 30 coming off a down year. This isn't like Adam Thielen coming off an injury plagued age 30 season. This is, this is a guy who had one of the worst seasons at receiver we've seen in a very long time playing at the age of 32. Now he's going to be 33 and he's, he will have one-on-one matchups. I guess that's, that's one thing that might not have been the case last <laughs> year. And DJ, uh, sorry, uh, DeAndre Hopkins is going to get all the double teams that defenses can afford to, to hand out. And maybe AJ Green running against one-on-one, a second at best corner on a team. And with Kyler Murray being the kind of threat that he is, maybe, maybe that allows him to bounce back quite a bit. But to me, the, the main upside here, not upside, the main uh, benefit of adding A.J. Green to the Cardinals' offense is if and only if this results in Christian Kirk getting moved into the slot full-time. Because I hate the idea of adding A.J. Green to an offense that already has Larry Fitzgerald in the slot and is misusing Christian Kirk outside otherwise. But Christian Kirk in the slot is going to really help the offense if they if they take him there. And I don't have any faith in anything Cliff Kingsbury does. I think he's pretty clearly a bad coach and he doesn't actually know what the first thing about being a good coach would look like. I think he, he took, he, he dutifully took the lessons of Mike Leach and he, he became an expert on the subject, but he's knowledgeable about precisely nothing else. And if he needs to make like a insight based, quick, uh, good judgment sort of thing, I don't think it's in a, I don't think he has it. And with the very, at the very least, they need to start switching up their routes more. They need to get, have some motion before the snap. They need to make something that makes the defense stressed occur other than Kyler Murray's heroics. And last year, the year before that, it's just Kyler Murray's heroics. Cliff doesn't have any sort of thing helping any of them. So with that being the case, the idea of adding a 33-year-old declining player does not make me optimistic. Like I, I think they would need to do things smarter than they have in the past, and Cliff has been static. He hasn't, he's shown no progress as a coach at any point in his coaching history. So I'm, I'm pretty concerned. I think he should. I wish they would fire him, but they're not going to because this defense is going to be sick, and, and Kyler Murray is, is so amazing that Cliff can't single-handedly destroy him, even though he may as well be trying to. So I, I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical, but if they move Kirk into the slot, that gives me some reassurance. Uh, not because I feel any better about Cliff. I just think it's one of those things like Kirk is too good of a player to be stopped if you let him play the position he's supposed to play, which as much as I think he's a good outside receiver, he's a great slot prospect, and it's it's been a waste to have him playing outside all this time. Right, exactly. So yeah, you had you had him playing 564 uh, snaps on the outside last year, just 206 um, in the slot. So you know, presumably AJ Green eats up a bunch of those outside slots, moves Kirk into the into the slot, and, and then like you said, you know, th- this could be something where uh, Cliff can't even screw this one up just because d- simply getting Kirk in his optimal spot along with the other two guys on the outside. That sets up really well. And then I, I guess one last thing for you on, on this Cardinals team. You know, what what do you do about your your Andy Isabellas of the world or, or your Keyshawn Johnsons? I, I think what we I know how we think about Keyshawn Johnson. Yeah, but. Keyshawn Johnson if he's if he's if he's the guy that you want to give snaps to in your offense, you've built a bad team basically. Like you cannot end up in a situation where you're giving meaningful reps to a player like that. And if you are, you've both handled your your player personnel poorly in the sense of like draft and free agency 
and you're not even having you're you're not playing guys where they're supposed to be. You're not using them the right way. You've and this is this is part of why I think Cliff Kingsbury is a, a distinctly awful coach because he can't adapt to anything. He can only write out the parameters described by Mike Leach and say, "You guys got to do this." And if they can't, he has no second move. He can't he can't say, "Well, oh, well, uh, if that doesn't really work for you, maybe we just got to redesign it this way." And there we go, that all adds up nicely. He can't do that. He can only keep jamming the same button over and over and hoping that he gets a better result than last time. And usually he doesn't unless Kyler Murray does something amazing running the ball uh, to bail him out over and over and over every single week. So, I think that I, I don't know, Isabella is to me still a good prospect. He's not a complete receiver, but that's that should not be something that makes people conclude he's bad. Like, we knew he wasn't a complete receiver because if we thought he was a complete receiver, he wouldn't be a late second-round pick. He would have been a first-round pick. So the, the pointing out, like, oh, he has bad hands in the slot, that's not interesting to me because he's not supposed to be running underneath slot routes anyway. But because Cliff Kingsbury doesn't know how to design anything by himself and he has no insight, he puts Isabella on the field – and he has him on the outside position first, and oh, 5'9", 188, Andy Isabella isn't good enough as an outside run blocker to seal the edge when we're trying to get screens in the outside going or when we're trying to get an outside run going. He's not a good enough blocker. So let's move him into the slot where you know he's not going to have a press man against them that he needs to block on the play. Oh, but Cliff Kingsbury, Mike Leach instructions say you have to have a slot receiver run underneath routes. That's what the scheme says. So, Andy, I know you run a 4-3-1 or whatever. I know you're faster than Denzel Ward. But run a six-yard curl every single play, okay? And if you drop the ball because a defender who's uh, 60 pounds heavier than you hits you over the middle because they saw that we're running the same route 85% of the time, that's your fault if you drop it. And everyone on the Internet is going to complain about how you drop too many passes. And Isabella does well because he can, uh, when he can create separation, which he incidentally is good at, but mm-hmm. he can't, the, the job that Cliff asked him to do last year necessarily could not involve separation. It's a task where you're just like getting an extended handoff basically for six yards over and over because Cliff Kingsbury's scheme is not, not much more than just like four or five curl routes in every single play under the theory that, well, the defense has to screw up on one of them. And then it turns out, oh, they don't actually because it's easy to cover a curl. And when that happens, Kyler Murray bails them out with amazing running. And people forget to say that Cliff Kingsbury should be fired for that stupid offense he trotted out. And I think you're going to see more of that this year, especially because the defense is going to be so good under Vance Joseph. And and they have a lot of talent in the front seven. And people are going to do the thing. It's like Kyler Murray's legs did it last year. The defense is going to do it this year. The, the, The Cardinals are going to do stupid things on offense they shouldn't do that a coach like Kingsbury has no excuse for. But they're not really going to notice because the optics are going to be cards win by three. Cards win by one or two. Kyler Murray's heroics. MVP talk for Kyler Murray. And they're not noticing that this is all like a team bailing out its terrible coach over and over and over. Um, unless they do lose, in which case we might actually see some some scrutiny of Kingsbury's objectively terrible scheming. But uh, until then, I think Andy Isabella is clearly never happening there. And they should just trade or cut him because Cliff has no idea what to do with him. He can't use him. Um, Andy Isabella should be used exactly the same way that Tampa Bay is using Scott Miller, who you might notice is even smaller than Andy Isabella and was less productive in college and just slower than Andy Isabella. But the Buccaneers just have, they let him run outside and downfield anyway, because that's what he's good at. And mm-hmm. instead Cliff Kingsbury goes, uh, I guess I'll just have to put Keyshawn Johnson out there. Cause I can't think of a better idea than that. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, you know, like let, let, see how the other set other half lives when, when you compare, you know, 
we we don't think that Scotty Miller's a complete receiver, but Tampa Bay knows exactly how to use him. So that that's and that's yeah. The they same don't ask him that, to play a different position and then say, "Oh, you're bad if he's not good at it." You know, it's in, it's insane what Cliff Kingsbury is doing. And um, oh crap, I had, I had some one last thing. Uh, oh no, it got away from me. Sorry, I'm, I'm it's too okay. ADD. I don't, I don't I know. I think we, we might have covered it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yes, maybe. A little breaking news for you here, Mario. A little instant reaction. Uh, so I, I started to see after after Hunter Henry's signing in New England this week, maybe some Donald Parham optimism. But Jared Cook, one year deal to the Chargers now. What say you? Yeah, I think Cook is going to be the starter, and Parham is really interesting. But it, it's kind of funny that no one's pointed this out. He's basically the same height as Ed Too Tall Jones, and no one's calling him Donald Too Tall Parham, but he probably is actually too tall. Ed Too Tall yeah. Jones was not too tall to play defensive end in the '60s or '70s or whatever. He was he was an awesome defensive end, and he probably would be today too. He's, he's Hall of Fame kind of talent, but it's not good to be a six foot nine tight end because you're playing next to, you know, six, you're, you're, you're lining up in line against like six foot one defensive ends who weigh the same as much or more than you, who just murder you with your leverage disadvantage. Like it's, it's like put, putting a center out there, like an NBA center to play NFL center. Like they wouldn't stand a chance, even though they're huge because right. they're just, they're not going to be able to reach that low. So Donald Parham is basically not a tight end as far as I can see it. Like I don't think he can play in line tight end, not reliably anyway. The way you use Parham that that might work, I think, is if you use him like uh, Arizona used Dan Arnold last year, which is to say just a guy who is listed at tight end but plays wide receiver. Uh, because if you're if you're playing Donald Parham at receiver, it's like yeah, six six foot nine, six foot eight. That's a problem if you're trying to block in line. But if if he's instead lined up in the slot against a five nine corner, that's the defense's problem now because he doesn't need to reach down to grab that guy, and that guy isn't going to have forty pounds of mass on him to throw him backward. It's it's instead the exact exact other way around. It's like the ball's going up, the the corner can't reach it. There's nothing that he can really do except maybe jam Parham at the line. But you know Parham's a huge guy and he's pretty fast. Like he runs like a, a four six eight or something like that. So. There's ways he can be good, but the chances of him being a starting NFL tight end, I think, basically don't exist. Okay. All right. So that, that's good to, to kind of set the record on, on that one. Ferkser is the tight end hype item uh, in Tennessee. Oh, okay. And and Moelle Cox if Indianapolis doesn't get Zach Ertz. Ooh. Hmm. Okay. So, so some tight end dominoes potentially starting to fall in interesting spots. Um, are you going to have any cook shares, you know, with him being the tight end for Justin Herbert, or, or you think this is more of an offense that, like, the short and intermediate stuff mostly will be Eckler, Keenan Allen territory, and then, you know, they, they got those deep threats too? I don't really know. I, I could be interested in Cook depending on what the price is. I, I don't. I haven't seen people's reaction to this signing yet. If he's getting hyped as, like, an eighth-round pick, then no. But if they're saying – uh, he's crap. There's nothing he can do. Donald Parham's going to start over him. Donald Parham is the goat. Uh, then I'll probably draft Jared Cook in, in you know, the 12th round or something like that. But I, I don't know what exactly to expect there because Brandon Staley, you know, he's a, he's a defensive guy, but he's by all accounts an enlightened defensive guy, which and enlightened in a way that I don't think would be possible unless he had a curiosity toward and a, at least a loose 
a loose mastering of what offensive coaching looks like. Like I, I think Staley is a guy who comes up with his defensive ideas because he understands offense so well and that he was recruited by McVay and that he was, uh, you know, in Denver where Shermer was before that. I think there's a, or wait, no, Shermer wasn't there at the time. Um, but anyway, uh, I think, I think that it, there's a good chance he views things a lot like McVay does or Shanahan, that kind of school of offensive coaching. And I don't know what that offense does with a Jared Cook or a Donald Parham. So, there's a chance that we haven't really seen these McVay Shanahan offenses use a guy like Cook, and, and if if there's some novel usage that Staley has in mind, there, there could be something pretty interesting there because that offense is going to move the ball, and at a certain extent, if just being on the field is is enough to justify the cost of a player when they're on the field for an offense like that one. Uh, so let's get on over to Buffalo. So they just signed Emmanuel Sanders. Obviously, um, so that was an interesting decision. It kind of gives them a, a weird loadout at receiver. You know, a bunch of guys that can play in or outside. Uh, you know, Stefan Diggs played, a, you know, kind of 50-50 between the two, a little bit more in the slot last year. Gabriel Davis even. I think he's probably just better suited going outside full-time. Um, but then you obviously have Cole Beasley occupying a ton of slot snaps as well. So how does Sanders fit in, and, and does this – uh, Buffalo receiving core look any scarier to you with this addition? I don't know for sure what they're thinking because I, I was a little bit surprised by that pickup, but Emmanuel Sanders is getting up there in age, but he was very effective last year. So there could be something left there. And if, if there is something left there, at least because of his age, it's probably not downfield functions. Like he used to be pretty fast and maybe he still is. I don't know, but that's something they can't really assume will be the case six months from now, even if it is the case right now. So I don't think, I don't think they're a dumb team. Like I think, I think Dable is pretty much the smartest offensive mind in the game right now. And I, I think whatever decision they came up with was, was him saying, I know what will work and having a good reason for thinking what he did. So looking at what a Sanders could do, most plausibly, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they signed him to basically be a zone beater underneath. And not to say he won't get downfield shots, like I, I think he will, because even if he's not fast anymore, if you leave him one-on-one, he's a good enough route runner to create an opening, especially if it's like Allen scrambling a little bit and there's a he creates a little bit more room on the side of the field. You get it to Sanders. It's like he can he can hurt teams, at least in the intermediate right there. But if if you're Brian Dable or if you're Brandon Bean, whoever it was that that can claim most of the the agency on this, you might be thinking about that Baltimore game. And even though Buffalo won it, you might be thinking about how like, wow, we couldn't do anything against those zones they were calling. We, it, it's so easy when everyone goes press man against us because Josh just throws it to De- Stephon Diggs or you know if if necessary Beasley gets open underneath and if none of that's working the defense probably turned their backs on Allen and he can just run it now but when you're going against a zone defense that's well coached Allen doesn't know what his reads are as much like he do, he he relies on that pre-snap motion and the fact that uh, uh, or whether a defensive back runs with the motioning guy to figure out whether it's man coverage or zone coverage and what types of either one it might be and when you just go out there with just zone and nobody moves when the offense moves Josh Allen doesn't know what's going on anymore and they they basically shut him down in that game. And I don't know if adding Sanders will help, but if there is a way that he would help, it would probably have to do with 
his way of bailing out Josh Allen when he sees that zone look and doesn't know what to do. And, and maybe they're banking on Sanders being such an expert on identifying coverages that he just presents Allen like some, some quick underneath looks that make the defense adjust a little bit and, and abandon some of their soft zones and, and give more pre-snap hints so that it can get Allen back on track. Um, but, yeah, he's not going to be able to do John Brown stuff. It'll have to be a little bit different of a vision. Okay. And then uh, last question on this one. Does this throw any cold water on on the year two breakout for Gabriel Davis, or, or what do we think uh, happens with him? It's not great because Sanders is going to play a little bit, and as much as there's still a lot of promise with Gabriel Davis, his his great production last year was was largely propelled by some big plays, and he can keep making those big plays. And even if he's not fully polished right now, it's like he, he can be better in a couple years than he is right now. He's still a really young prospect. So the chances of him kind of outplaying Emmanuel Sanders don't seem good to me. Even though Davis will probably play well, it's like Sanders probably will too. And Sanders knows a lot more about playing receiver than Gabriel Davis does. So I, I think it's bad news for Davis, but he he's... He's still a fine pick, uh, pending the price anyway, because Stephon Diggs does have an injury history going back to Maryland, and Emmanuel Sanders, you know, he at least had that Achilles tear a couple of years ago. He's getting older. Right. Cole Beasley had some injury troubles last year, and Davis did play a bunch of slot snaps. So there's a chance that uh, if any of there, there's there's a decent chance that any of one of anyway. Diggs or Sanders or Beasley gets hurt. And if they do, Davis just takes whatever is freed up. Like there's no, there's no like second possibility in that case. Like he takes it, whatever is there. So he's a good upside ticket. And if his market responds too harshly to this Emmanuel Sanders news, I would still be interested in buying if there's a, a, you know, a reasonable price intersection with the value. Okay, and, and he was, you know, a, a pretty easy grab it, it, towards the end game in, in best ball last time I did one a couple weeks ago. So um, if this drives his price down further, maybe closer to like 200 overall or something, that then, you know, I think that's a, that's a really great buying opportunity. Maybe the last skill guy uh, you get before rounding things out. Um, one more receiver signing to get to before a couple rumored ones. Uh, Richard Higgins, your guy, kind of. Uh, yeah, going going back to Cleveland. I mean, there's been some cryptic OBJ tweets. I, I don't know how fluent you are in, in OBJ, so I, I, I don't know what what anything means. That but. second act thing. I remember people being like, "Oh, this means something." It's like, doesn't it probably mean that he's playing for the Browns the second year? Like, why would he? It's the second act. That's not what you say when you're getting traded. That's not. That's not it, even yeah, really the, cryptic. Yeah, the Browns are his second act. Yeah, like I, I viewed it as like my second year with the Browns. Here it comes, the second act, and and some people were like, oh, uh, second act third, with the Giants. Is this third year? Is this yeah, third like year? what did they think he was getting traded back to the Giants or something? And like that, oh, he'd be like, this is dope. I'm going back to the Giants. Uh, yeah, like and I don't know what the hell people are thinking, but he still could be traded pretty easily because. I don't know if the Cleveland offense really has ambitions to utilize a player like Beckham. Uh, everyone, I know everyone's really high on Stefanski right now. I bet you won't be after this year. And I think that they, that he lacks the vision of, of even, maybe you could blame this on Baker Mayfield. Maybe it's not Stefanski's fault, but, uh, I think that 
Stefanski is the type of guy to kind of believe that talk that people made in, late last year. Like, Baker Mayfield's rating is better after Odell Beckham got hurt. Odell Beckham's selfish ways were, were making the offense inefficient. And that's not what was going on. And I, I and yet I, I think Stefanski is, has shown some signs of lacking real insight. And so he, having been awarded coach of the year for the offense that they had in the second half of last year, I can see him imagining like, yeah, we should, we should, we should get rid of Beckham. We can't really use him. It's, and it, to be fair, it is easy to move him because there's no cap penalty for doing it. So if some team offers a nice draft pick for him, it makes perfectly good sense to trade Beckham, but I think they'll be disappointed in what happens when you, when you really commit to a speed free offense uh, like you can, you can always bulldoze in the ground game with Chubb, especially when you're going against a bad defense. But what happens when you go against a good defense is if you can't threaten them downfield and keep the safeties back, a good enough defense can shut down any run offense, almost no matter how good it is when they're when they're not playing an yep. honest game. So you don't have to play an honest game against that offense if Beckham isn't out there and, and Baker Mayfield's the quarterback and his his fastest receiver is uh, I don't know uh, DPJ. Yeah, he def- it's definitely him. It's just like, is, is there room on the field with this two tight end formation where they, they have Beckham and uh, Landry and, and Higgins ahead of him? Oh, yeah. So we'll see. Uh, I think Higgins is clearly very good. And I think one of the one of the reasons I don't think Stefanski is a good coach is the fact that he had Higgins on the bench, that he just kept the Freddie Kitchens depth chart to open the year and had Kadaral Hodge ahead of Rashard Higgins when the only reason Kadaral Hodge played ahead of Rashard Higgins in 2019 was because Rashard Higgins got in a fight with Freddie Kitchens. So if, if Stefanski doesn't have enough insight to be like, oh, look, uh, the coach benched this other receiver who was, oh, look at this, almost flawlessly efficient in 2018. Uh, he benched him because he got in a fight with him. Uh, I better leave him on the depth chart because that seems like I leave him at the same spot on the depth chart because that seems like a good reason uh, for leaving him there behind Kaderil Hodge who cannot do anything and he left Kaderil Hodge out there instead. But there's no doubt Richard Higgins can play and in 2018 and the first half of that Tennessee Week One 2019 game before the Browns completely collapsed, he was producing almost just like. Like an on rhythm automatic just first down. Like it's, it's, that's how reliable he was. And it's, it's kind of, it, he, he apparently stayed in Cleveland because he feels like he works really well with Baker Mayfield and that may well be the case. But in the meantime, Higgins was insanely productive in college. And yes, I know he's not, he's not a good athlete. He's objectively not a good athlete, but the skill level is so beyond any doubt. And if, if he just gets the targets, he's going to produce. The question is kind of like how many targets per snap can he draw? Because he's not a dominant receiver. He's he's more like a guy who, if you leave him in press man coverage, single coverage, he'll keep chipping away for 13-yard gains, something like that. But he will do that. And or insofar as if you give him the opportunity, he will do that. And so I kind of can see why they would move Beckham, if so. But if it was me in charge, they would move Jarvis Landry instead, and they would keep Odell Beckham's speed on the field. Because I, I don't think anything good will happen when you when you make clear to the safeties that they can basically stop paying attention and they're never going to get beat deep again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a... It's a crowded group there. And like you said, you know, that there are elements that, that work, but it, it feels like at times, uh, you know, that there's, there's some stuff that, that is confusing as, as far as their personnel groupings are concerned. I, I thought after OBJ went out last year, at the very least, they got to see 
a little bit more out, out of Higgins. They, they got to see what they had in Donovan Peoples-Jones, which, you know, he looks like he needs to, to play a little bit more. So it feels like there's a log jam there. Uh, like you said, um, you know, Jar- Jarvis Landry is – he is what he is at this point. We, we all know that. So I don't really know what to make of, of this offense. And, you know, Baker Mayfield maybe getting a little bit better in year four. We'll, we'll have to see what, what happens there. But either way, uh, bringing Higgins back uh, made some sense at least. Yeah, uh, he's for, really for the cheap. They, they lowballed him and he resigned because he was basically like, I just, I just think I work better with Baker. So uh, if Higgins is getting snaps, he's going to get his in if he gets his targets, I guess I should say, he's going to produce. So uh, I like him and if they do move Beckham, it's it's a boost for both. Absolutely. Um let's get on to a couple rumors uh, as we round things out here. Um so uh Kenny Galladay kind of in a in this uh interesting little bidding war between the the Giants and the and the Bengals and I think the the way that it was described at least as of Wednesday night was uh, Cincinnati essentially offering a one-year prove-it deal, probably with, with more money up front, and then the Giants uh, maybe looking at, at more of a, a longer-term deal. So it's up to Galladay as to what, whether he wants that, that short-term prove-it at this stage of his career um, and hit free agency again next year or, or have a little bit more security going uh, the route of the Giants. Uh, he is just as old as Mike Evans, like, like we've mentioned before. So he doesn't have a ton of, ton more bites at the apple as far as uh, getting a, a big payday is concerned. He's just coming off of his rookie deal. What makes the most sense for you fit wise? And, and uh, you know, if you're Kenny G, what, what's it, what's going through your mind? I don't know. If, if the Giants are offering him money, I guess I would just take the money, but it sounds like they aren't because I, I don't know. It, it just, it seems to me like he wouldn't be entertaining an offer like the Cincinnati one if the Giants were offering something much better. I don't think the Cincinnati situation is more uh, favorable toward him. So I, I can't really tell what the calculus is, but if I was him and he's only getting kind of low ball offers from teams like the Giants and the Bengals, I would see if there's a good team that would sign me for a lower amount yet on a one-year deal. Because I don't know if going to Cincinnati for one year is going to boost his market. I don't. It might hurt his market. If he if he goes to Cincinnati and he only has like 890 yards in 14 games, he's going to get offered less at a year older in 2022 than he's getting offered right now. But if he plays for less for a team like Green Bay or something, then he could put up 1,400 yards and get the highest contract among next year's receiver class. So I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what his realistic options are. But if they're not giving him good offers and the only teams that are giving him these prove-it deals that are beneath him, basically, then take a prove-it deal that's beneath you and at least gives you a favorable situation to demand basically uh, recompensation a year from now. Uh, yeah, which I, going to going to the Giants or the Bengals is a good way to make people f- basically forget about you. Yeah, I, I think that um – you know, if he goes to the Giants, he is their best receiver probably. But at the same time, you you, you get the downgrade from from Stafford to Daniel Jones. Um, I think Daniel Jones really starting to prove 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 the uh, people that were laughing at the Giants back in the 2019 draft. It inching closer to to proving the naysayers correct. Uh, he did not look great last year, and then with the Bengals, uh, the offensive line still an issue. And I'm not totally convinced that. Galladay is in 2021 going to be better than T Higgins. Oh, he won't be. So Higgins is you know, better right now. 
Yeah, so at that point, you know, you're fighting to be the second, and Tyler Boyd is a hell of a player too. So I mean, yeah. I think that you know, you're you're fighting to be like option two A, maybe two B in that in that offense. And and again, we don't even know how exactly Joe Burrow is going to look coming off of you know what was a pretty gruesome knee injury for him last year. So yeah, that's not a great. It's it kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If those are your two suitors and your Kenny Galladay, so. We'll be interesting to see if, you know, a third, you know, mystery team kind of emerges. Like, like you said, a team with a good quarterback that could use uh, some receiver help on the outside. That would that would really help boost the stock if he had to do the, the one-year deal. I like the way that you framed that one. And then uh, we got to round things out with the Jets. They are apparently kicking the tires on Juju Smith-Schuster, so obviously it looks like Juju. It's looked like that all, all week and, you know, maybe a little bit before if you play TikTok or uh, play uh Fortnite with, with Juju Smith-Schuster running around in, in the Dolphins uniform on uh, on there. Uh, that that his time in Pittsburgh was obviously going to come to an end. Um, Jets and Juju, does that feel like a, a decent fit to you, especially after the Corey Davis signing earlier this week? I guess I don't really I don't really know what exactly they're trying to do with the Jets. I think Juju's good. I don't think that he's like a product. Of, of the Pittsburgh system or something. I think, especially the last two years, he's been held back by the Pittsburgh, not system, I guess, but Ben Roethlisberger and, and his limitations have been uniquely penalizing to, to Juju Smith-Schuster among the players on that team. So I'm convinced that he's good. I don't know if I'm convinced that the Jets are the team to kind of get him back on track, but uh, I don't know. I think it would be an upgrade because I just really don't think you can do worse than Ben Roethlisberger right now. It's like you're talking like Alex Smith, Ben Roethlisberger, Kyle Allen. Like those are the worst quarterbacks I think you can find on a roster right now. And going from that to any alternative is probably good. So I would have liked to see Juju on a little bit more solvent of an organization, but just getting out of Pittsburgh almost has to be good. And, Corey Davis and Denzel Mims to me are not target hog receivers. Like maybe, maybe Davis, uh, and maybe Mims. I don't know. I could be wrong about him, but to me, they're both more like guys who, if they paid, if they play 900 snaps, they're getting like maybe a hundred targets, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas Juju's a guy who I think if he plays a thousand snaps, he's getting like 1300 targets, something like that. So if Mims and, and Davis are not high target frequency guys, they will create a, like structurally, they will help still by, by keeping the safeties locked at a certain level of the field. Like if you want to crash the safeties against Mims and Davis, they can hurt your outside corner enough times that you just stop doing that eventually. And if you stop doing that, then Juju's going to be open pretty regularly. Cause if, if you're not crowding his part of the field, he, that's just how good he is. So I think there's, if they get kind of like a better than a below average quarterback play there, there is a way for Juju to break back out, but I don't think it's likely that we'll see enough of a pie there for everybody's favorite investments to come out uh, exactly the way they hoped. And especially I'm thinking of Mims. Like, he's, he's a good prospect. He's probably a good player, but I don't think he has a shot at breaking out if Davis and Juju are both on the field. Yeah, that, that's going to make it a lot tougher for, for the, you know, the proverbial year two uh, breakout for, for a guy uh, like Mims. Um, so what we'll see if the, if that interest actually turns into a contract when it comes to the Jets and Juju Smith Schuster. Let's wrap it up for free agency frenzy part two for Mario Puig. 
I'm John McKechnie. We'll be back next week, of course, rounding up the rest of these free agent signings and also getting into some pro day stuff with the draft rapidly approaching. So stay tuned for that next week. And again, thanks for listening.